I think it does send a good message about the fact that we're taking this seriously and really do want to be aligned with the users, the traders, specifically the traders. I actually don't care about anybody else <laughs> in the ecosystem. Like the entire point of all of this stuff that we're building is to build the best possible product for our end users. All right, everyone, we will be back to the program in just a moment. But before we do, I want to share something that Blockworks has been cooking up for these last couple of months. March of this coming year in London, Blockworks is hosting DAS London, the largest institutionally focused conference in all of crypto. Goldman, JP Morgan, Point72, all in one room, so you can know what the big money is doing. So click the link at the bottom of this episode. It'll take you right over to the homepage and use Bell20 for 20% off. I will see you in sunny London town in March. This episode is brought to you by Maverick Protocol, a suite of liquidity tools built around an innovative AMM. Maverick helps token projects, DAO treasuries, LPs, or basically anyone in DeFi shape their liquidity with efficiency and flexibility. How, you might ask? Stick around and you're going to be hearing about them more later. Now, on with the show. All right, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Bell Curve. Before we jump in, quick disclaimer, the views expressed by my co-host today are their personal views and they do not represent the views of any organization with which the co-hosts are associated with. Uh, nothing in the episode is construed or relied upon as financial, technical, tax, legal, or other advice. You know the deal. Now, let's jump into the episode. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Bell Curve. In today's episode, Dan and I interview Antonio Giuliano, the founder and CEO at DYDX. This was a particularly fun episode, not only because Antonio is such a forward-thinking and think visionary founder, but also because we got to re-examine a lot of the themes that Dan and I have been exploring this season, primarily through the lens of DAP DEXs that are building on Ethereum from the perspective of the operator of an app chain. So a lot of the questions that we've been asking ourselves this season, such as how MEV leaks um, outside of DAPDEXs to uh, proposers in Ethereum, is very different when the validators are actually part of DYDX chain itself. We also got into some really fun nuance around some of the work that validators can do for an app chain and some of what's possible to build on an app chain, say having your validators actually run, uh, you know, act as oracles and run an order book on your behalf. Um, we also uh, got Antonio's perspective on the relative market share of perps versus spot uh, going into the future. So overall, just an extremely fun episode with a with a visionary uh, founder. So hope you enjoy. All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of Bell Curve. Today, Dan and I are joined by Antonio Giuliano, the founder and CEO at DYDX. Antonio, welcome to the program. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Thanks. We are... We're really excited about this um, because I think this is going to be a fun sort of culmination of a bunch of the topics that Dan and I have already covered this season. Uh, we're going to get deep on the idea of MEV. Um, we're going to cover frequent batch auctions again uh, because that's a part of V4 for DYDX, uh, albeit from a, from a totally new perspective because Dan and I have been approaching most of the season from the perspective of a, a DAP uh, DEX building on uh, Ethereum. Um, and instead, we're going to be talking about the app chain perspective here and hoping to get into the nitty gritty granular weeds there. Mm -hmm. um, and I also maybe just want to say as a disclaimer, this is um, assuming a little bit of basic knowledge about DYDX and perps and all of that good stuff uh, as well. So just to dive in here, Antonio, Dan and I have been one of the, the big themes that Dan and I have been exploring this entire season uh, is this idea of reducing uh, MEV leakage um, outside of DEX ecosystems. Uh, and some of that loss ends up going to kind of the, the proposer in the system of Ethereum. But obviously in an app chain context, that's that's very different. So I guess just from a very high level before we start to walk into um, some of the architectures that you have for for mitigating or dealing with MEV. And you know, how, how do you as the operator of a 
of an app chain DEX. Think about MEV that might be a little bit different from the Ethereum as sort of canonical perspective. I think the most important thing to understand is that the design space is bigger, in my opinion, because you, as the app chain, own more of the stack. Obviously, in something like Ethereum, there's no preconception that validators should care at all about any particular app running on top of Ethereum. Like, it's not really the validators or potentially even the proposer's responsibility to maybe do something like minimize MEV on Uniswap or whatever other random decks might exist on Ethereum. But that could potentially be fundamentally different on an app chain. Um, and I think it does make the design space bigger. I won't say it's objectively better. I think it comes with positives and negatives to it. Um, but I think it allows us to do things like potentially align the incentives of the validators, the token holders, and the users in a better way and more aligned way than what we could do on top of Ethereum. So I think there's a that's a pretty high level thought and there's a ton to dive into, but that's what I'll start with. Yeah, I mean, I'd be curious um, when you when you start to think about that alignment, like one of the things that that stands out to me is, you know, in sort of Ethereum land, Dan and I have spent a lot of time talking about how like really, you know, when you think about, you know, LPs and swappers on something like Uniswap, they're actually very united today in that really what we want to do is there's an enormous amount of MEV that ends up leaking down to the Ethereum proposer. And folks on the app layer are sort of... Uh, you know, laser focused on mitigating that that leakage and then just redirecting it back to the system of LPs and swappers. And then eventually maybe somewhere down the line, there's like a little bit of a battle for what's the right amount of uh, fees to take, et cetera. But we're just a long ways away from that. Um, I would love to get your perspective on you sort of have this more explicit third stakeholder here where the validators in your ecosystem are running you know, sort of consensus-based uh, code, but also the application logic as well. So how do you think about balancing sort of that MEV that gets created between those three stakeholders? And then how much do you think about like redistributing them versus just trying to mitigate it entirely? So I think that's a really good characterization. I would also argue that there's actually four stakeholders in the ecosystem. Um, so the three that you said, effectively the makers and the takers, and then the validators as well. I would also argue that us as developers, because we have access to more of the stack that we're building on, are more, we have basically more tools to work with um, for MEV on top of an app chain than we would if we were just constrained to building smart contracts or other types of decentralized systems like proposers that could, you know, bundle up back to the base chain. So with that in mind, um, I'll introduce two level, two high level concepts that we're thinking about right now. And the other high level thing that I'll say before I dive into literally what we're doing is that although I think this is a really exciting, large design space, it's also very unexplored. And I think it's much more unexplored than MEV on Ethereum so far, just because app chains are newer, there haven't really been any projects with super significant trading volume that, that happen on an app chain. And we aim to kind of set the standard alongside other really good partners like Skip and others for what MEV can be or what MEV mitigation can be on an app chain. Okay, so what are we actually doing? The thing that we have built into the platform right now is at a high level what we're calling social slashing um, based on, we, we effectively came up with this metric where you can score the execution quality of the trades that each particular validator is executing 
relative to the mean or the average. And then you can compute statistics over the long term and be like, ah, aha, this particular validator is executing at a price that's 10 basis points, whatever, farther away from almost all other validators. They must either be doing MEV or potentially have non-performant hardware, software, whatever else, but whatever, like you don't really want that particular validator to, to be in your network. Um, and I think just being able to come up with this one particular metric from an audit auditability perspective is valuable. Now, of course, this is a really open-ended question, and there are a lot of opinions on whether this is actually going to work or not. And we don't necessarily think it's going to be the be-all and end-all of MEV prevention, but we think it's a good start. And I think it does send a good message about the fact that we're taking this seriously and really do want to be aligned with the users the traders, specifically the traders. I actually don't care about anybody else <laughs> in the ecosystem. Like the entire point of all of this stuff that we're building is to build the best possible product for our end users. Um, so just a little bit more on how this social mechanism works. So effectively Skip, which is a third party provider has built this dashboard, which tracks this metric over time. Um, and then you can look for each particular validator how good or bad is their fill execution quality? And then the theory is later, either the token holders, some governance committee, still sort of being figured out by the community at a high level, can come in, do things like potentially slash these validators and their respective stakers or take other action um, based on how egregious the the uh, execution scores are. Now, this is really a game theoretic problem, right? Like, how is this going to end up? Is it going to be like over time, all the validators, maybe there's not one that's super egregious, that's kind of obvious, but maybe they all start doing a little bit more MEV over time to the point where they're effectively outsmarting the, the metrics ability to catch them. That could happen. Uh, I can't, it, this is really a big experiment. Um, but I also think it's possible that at least from a messaging perspective, this one buys DYDX a lot of time on the MEV side um, because these things, the, these games that you play on both sides from the kind of mitigator's perspective and the extractor's perspective take a long time to flesh out. And the sophistication on both sides, I think, increases over time. Um, so that's the thing that we've literally built or Skip has literally built on top of the protocol right now. Um, we can we can dive into that at a high level. Um, the second thing that I'll just introduce really quickly, and obviously we can dive more into this later, is more protocol level mechanisms to mitigate MEV. Um, and I'll kind of introduce a concept at a high level that some who are familiar with Cosmos may be familiar with, but probably most who aren't familiar with Cosmos might not be. And this is the concept of vote extensions. And what vote extensions are at a high level is a way for not just the validator or the leader that's proposing a specific block um, to put information into the blockchain, but at a high level, it allows all validators or some subset of validators to put information into every block, even if it's being led by uh, another validator. And this concept is actually really powerful and I think is a good example of what I was talking about where we as the developers of the software behind UIDX can use this tool to put more information into the blockchain and effectively to use all the validators to come to consensus on what the actual orders uh, that or what the actual trades that are put into the blockchain are going to be. Um, and right now, this does not exist on the DYDX chain. This is something that our research team is working on right now from a high level. Um, we've kind of really taken our research team at DYDX from zero to one in the past six months. 
but, and I'll talk dive more into this later, using this concept to not just have the one proposer slash leader have full say over all of the trades and all of the matching that happens on the chain, but effectively use all the validators to work together, I think is a powerful concept that we're exploring too. Yeah. So maybe uh, starting with, I think that's a great overview, starting with the social mitigation strategy, I guess, you know, I come from a world where I'm kind of steeped in the belief that social mitigation for MEV is hopeless. And so we should actually just steer in the other direction and accelerate it and encourage, encourage MEV extraction within, within certain bounds as much as possible. Um, and I think, I think you've gotten some pushback from, from that school for, um, for, for sort of attempting something like this, the sort of social shaming of, of MEV extraction. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm curious how you react to, yeah, to, to that reaction. Okay, well, I, first of all, I just like don't really care. Obviously, I respect you and respect all of the uh, opinions of the people who have thought about this for a long time. I mean, Dan, you know this, but we have been talking about with Paradigm and Dan, for example, for a while, strategies on how we can mitigate MEV. Um, but the, the, let me be more specific about what I don't actually care about. Um, I don't think it's necessarily bad for these things to be experimented with in different ways from an ideological perspective. Again, I think we do have more tools that are available to us through building our own app chain than most other platforms of significance have had so far. So I think that does warrant uh, at least experimentation with this, this social slashing in a different way. Again, I think it's a big open question about whether that works long-term. And honestly, I don't think that it's likely that's 100% of the solution in the long-term. I do, like I was mentioning before, think it buys a good amount of time. I do think it sends the right message. And honestly, it's just not very expensive to build. Um, you know, kind of just tasking the research team on how can we come up with this one metric and then how can Skip implement something to track this? Um, I think it was certainly worth doing. So. I think there's a little bit too much of ideological dogma in general in crypto, which I've probably been well documented on on saying before. Really? Is there? <laughs> yeah. Where are you seeing that? <laughs> so, too many nerds that are upset about their technology, yeah, probably. Um, but anyways, like I try to be really agnostic to the technology and even let's extend that to the game theory of these mechanism design questions that we're coming up with. So that's probably the main way I, I would respond. Like, Probably that's true, um, but I think it's worth experimenting with, especially in a low-cost way like we've started to do. Yeah, and the, the way I see it, you're going to need some kind of mechan social mechanisms anyway to prevent collusion. For example, in the in the you know in the end game, um, I think you're still going to potentially be vulnerable if if two-thirds of validators were all to collude on censoring and ordering blocks. And if you if we just uh, encourage the idea that oh it's fine to do anything that the economics you know, that, that the right. computer science allows. Um, and that the economics encourages, then ultimately, I think you're going to you're going to run yourself off a cliff, no matter no matter how many mechanisms you build in. So I do I do agree that I, I think a lot of the challenge is is it actually possible to to detect um, uh, collusion, or you're just going to end up in an arms race with with uh, searches. But I think I think you've you've recognized that as much as anyone, which is why again I think you're doing so much good research on the on the long uh, on the long term, um, and, and moving to moving to other mechanisms. Yeah, I would highlight this as a difference that you tend to see in between Ethereum and Cosmos, just having spent a bunch of times in both ecosystems, whereas Ethereum is dealing with a very different problem because it's generalized block space. There are so many different validators um, that has certain advantages, but also certain constraints. Like you couldn't be like, well, let's just kind of come up with this social rule and give it a shot. Whereas in Cosmos, you tend to see 
quite a bit more of that, actually, um, which is sometimes very refreshing, but also many Cosmos chains don't have sort of the uh, intense privilege of securing, you know, $250 billion worth of value. Um, so it's just a very different problem, I think, that you're trying to yeah, optimize I think it's for. a different problem. And one of the decisions that we actually made on the DYDX chain is, at least to start, we decided to make it very special purpose. Um, and then there was actually a pretty big open question about what do we enable things like Cosmwasm to enable general purpose execution on top of the DYDX chain. In some sense, at first glance, it might be like, oh yeah, of course, why would we not do that? It's pretty free actually. Um, but then you have to start worrying about things like how do you share block space between the generalized execution environments and anything special that you might do? How do you mitigate the concerns of MEV with the generalized stuff and the specific stuff? Like how do we trade off against those two? And I think likely we will move more towards generalized execution on the DYDX chain, but in an intentional way. And it's always easier to solve a lot of these problems. And they're big problems when the design space is simpler. Yeah, maybe we should get a little into the um, into the the batch auction solution that you that you um, announced last month. Do you want yeah, to describe, describe in a little more detail how that works and how it takes advantage so of vote extensions? At a high level, right now, it's. The, the way the DYDX chain works is very similar to a normal order book exchange where whoever's the leader um, as per the software gets effectively full authority to match the orders however they want. And specifically, however they want consistent with the limit prices of the orders that are put in the blockchain. Um, so to some extent, this is effectively fine. This is more or less what exists on top of things like Ethereum and basically every other DEX right now. It's a little bit different because it's an order book based system versus an AMM one. And that has different considerations. Um, again, we have this social mitigation feature right now, um, but we think there's more to do here. So the big idea about the frequent batch, batch auctions is that orders would no longer be matched on a one-to-one -one basis, but instead each particular market would come up with one clearing price. Again, still for the time being, uh, that clearing price would be put in by the leader of each particular block. Potentially over time, you could include things like validators working together with vote extensions to come up with the clearing price for each particular market. Um, but then it's kind of like, okay, let's maybe take a step back here and just talk at a high level about how order books work. It's kind of like there, there are some ask orders that are selling assets. There are some buy orders. If you've ever looked at an exchange before, you know what that looks like. And then what is matching? Matching means that normally the ask orders are here and the bid orders are here and there's some spread between the two. But if there's a bid that actually crosses this ask price or an ask that crosses this bid price, then you have, should have these two people trade with each other at this particular price. But what price? That's kind of the question here. The, the price that could be valid for these two orders to match together is anything within here. And maybe numerically, let's give an example of that. So if there's an ask order to sell at 10 and there's a buy order to buy at 15, then the leader right now, as per the software, can make those two orders clear basically anywhere between 10 and 15. And maybe we can come up with a better solution for that. So the, the problem here becomes it, it's really it can be more susceptible to things like sandwich attacks, where if one of the leaders injects their own order um, and then they take a spread based off of that, then they can profit. Um, but it's a lot harder to do those types of attacks if you're using this frequent batch auction where there's just one, one clearing price for every order that matches in our particular block. It's not a golden ticket to solve everything, 
but we do believe it solves a good amount of classes of attacks on MEV. So it's something we're seriously considering over time. Now, let's, let me maybe talk from the other side, because we've been talking a lot about from a technical perspective, why do we, how do we solve MEV? It is a big problem, but there's trade-offs too. Um, and one of the reasons that we didn't start with the frequent batch auction, and one of the things I'm still honestly thinking about from a product perspective, is how does this change the product experience of trading on DYDX? Because one of the things that we've tried to do from a product perspective on DYDX is make a product that's very similar to normal exchanges, or at least Web2 exchanges, and make something where professional traders and market makers and the like don't have to change their trading strategies ideally too much to trade on DYDX. Now, at some level, especially now that we've become fully decentralized, we have to accept that that's probably inevitable um, and we should change the, the strategies over time or kind of change the rules of the game to make the game as fair as possible. Um, but there is some cost to changing the game. It's like market makers have to figure out how to quote now on frequent batch auctions instead of order books. Maybe they don't care that much about that. Maybe they do, but that's what building great product is about. You have to consider these product trade-offs, get a lot of feedback from your users, and then decide whether you ultimately want to make that change. Yeah. So, so when you've introduced, once you've introduced frequent batch auctions, you do have the issue that if you still have individuals proposing blocks, then then they can censor or, or um, adjust blocks and, and potentially still mm -hmm. kind of effectively sandwich users or, or extract value from users. Um, so you want to talk a little about how you solve or you, how you propose to solve the censorship problem? Yeah, and this is really where vote extensions start to come in. And that's what I was discussing before. Um, but the high level idea with vote extensions and we have a number of different ones that we're exploring on the research side. I think we're, we've mostly finished the ideation process. So we're always open to new things there, but our best idea right now um, is at a high level, like I was mentioning before, all of the validators, or at least some subset of the validators work together to put into vote extensions, all of the orders that they see. Um, and then this is a really powerful primitive because once you have in consensus, all of the orders that should have matched that they see to be more precise. Um, once you have all of those orders or proposed trades in the blockchain, you can have the subsequent leader look at the data that's in the blockchain and provably use that data to come up with what the matches should be on an ongoing basis. Um, so there's potential trade-offs around this as well. Um, and in kind of the worst case, it could uh, introduce a one block de delay to finality. It's probably not the end of the world. Like the block times on DYDX are on the order of a second, but now maybe you're waiting for, okay, it's like order is placed, then block one, all of these validators together puts all of the trades that should have happened into the blockchain and then block two, um, the, the new leader actually uses that data that's in the blockchain to come up with those matches together. But this really does solve in a big way, at least as per the constraints of how many validators, the two thirds consensus, all that sort of stuff and, and tendermint, the problem of denial attacks, um, where it's like now no longer can a leader ignore certain orders or insert, oh, they can still insert orders of their own, but they're subject to the same rules that, that everybody else is subject to. Um, so this is the biggest, I, I think, long-term solution that we'll probably have for MEV, or this is our best idea right now, but one of the things we're pretty excited about in the long-term. Um, just talking about, there's always trade-offs and trade-offs and trade-offs with all these sorts of things, but one of the questions that we're trying to solve right now is how do we make this happen from a performance perspective? Um, because uh, the way vote extensions work at a very high level is like the leader exists, then they propose a block, then they send that block out to all the other validators, 
And then vote extensions, which is something that's new within Cosmos, um, allows all the other validators, the followers, whatever, to put data back to the leader that they have to put in the blockchain. Um, but this could be a lot of data. Like if we're saying it's order and number of trades that are happening on the DYDX chain for each block, now it's multiplied by all of the validators. Um, so before we kind of had this data problem of, okay, there's obviously we have to put all of the trades on the blockchain into the blockchain, but only one validator has to do that. Now, at least for vote extensions, it's like you multiply the number of trades that are happening per block times however many validators you have. So we're shooting for like a hundred in the near future or so. Uh, I forget what, what is off the top of my head right now, I think like 50 or something, but now it's like a hundred times as much data. Um, so one of the other problems that we're trying to solve is, okay, first of all, uh, how important is this? Like, will this degrade the performance of the network? Um, we think it's relatively important because honestly, one of the problems with vote extensions right now is that they haven't proven yet to be very performance. They're very new. And I think the Cosmos team, Skip, others are doing good work in terms of optimizing them. Um, but for us, from a mechanism design perspective, are there ways that we can optimize this um, and maybe have validators only put a subset of the trades into the block or only the ones that are different from the ones the leader proposes or something like that? So there's a lot of different ideas that we're considering, but that's the type of work that we're doing on the research side. That's, that's super helpful, Antonio. And I, I want to dig uh, deeply into there, but I actually want to just take a moment here to connect some concepts with folks that might be a little bit more uh, similar with Ethereum. So a lot of what Antonio is describing here and what ABCI++ enables you to do uh, sort of rhymes with a lot of the conversations that get had uh, in Ethereum around Pepsi um, and sort of uh, all stem from this idea of how to uh, conduct a censorship resistant auction uh, and to break the sort of proposer monopoly. So just to, to break down into, you did a great job of describing that, but just to show whenever it's a complex topic, I always think it's good to get pictures. Maybe that's just because I'm secretly five years old, but I think it, it's helpful for folks. So just to go even into a little bit more detail about how, uh, you know, one of the, the differences in, in Cosmos is that every uh, validator runs both, um, you know, the consensus clients, so that's Tendermint or I guess Comet BFT now, but also the application logic. And then there's this thing that bridges them, which is ABCI um, previously. And in the, and then, uh, in, in the ABCI regime, uh, basically consensus comes up with a finalized block, which is the input to the uh, application layer. And if you're following along via video, which I would encourage you to do, you can sort of see a diagram of what that looks like. But in ABCI++, it kind of, uh, it uh, there are like these three sort of touch points that happen as the block is being built where the application can actually have input um, and more collaboratively build a block. Um, and that's where sort of vote, this idea of vote extensions come in when actually uh, different uh, validators in the chain can submit uh, transactions, which are then deterministically included within the next block. Hence how you can get the, the censorship resistant, uh, the censorship resistant auction, I think, which is, is, is that correct, um, Antonio, just to make sure I didn't butcher that um, overall, but I feel like that's the. Okay, cool. I think that's basically correct. I mean, honestly, I'm not quite as familiar with the state of the arts on MEV on Ethereum as you guys probably are, and potentially even some of the listeners are, but I would make the high level point that a lot of the stuff is very similar. And I really suspect that the end state solution for app chains and uh, layer one slash layer two systems on a bigger, more generalizable chain like Ethereum are gonna be similar. It's probably like the things on top of Ethereum will end up building probably something pretty similar to 
whatever ends up working for the app change, but then also solving the problem of how do we have this settle back to a base layer system. It's just a little simpler again for us right now on DYDX and some of the things we have going for us is we have a whole stack like I was talking about can be more tightly coupled with consensus. And then it's also just honestly really nice that we have this decentralized network of entities that we can kind of make from a software perspective do whatever we want as long as there's mechanism design around that and this topic this concept is really valuable so it's like this like proposer builder like separation all this sort of stuff well okay we just have like proposers be the validators obviously um and then even for something that's totally different like oracle prices normally if you're building a per product on top of a more generalizable chain you have to solve this problem of okay, well, great, like your consensus is fully decentralized to the level that Ethereum is, but who cares if your Oracle network is less decentralized Then your entire product is going to be less decentralized than that. And you can use products like Chainlink or or others that are doing a decent job solving this problem. But for us, it's actually really nice. Like we literally just have like 50 to 100 already decentralized entities that we can make do extra stuff like report Oracle prices on the network. Um, And I would argue that people have too narrow-minded of a view of what decentralization means. I think people reduce this problem too much to what is the level of decentralization of the base chain itself. Obviously very important since everything is clearly limited by that. Um, But I would kind of argue that the, the full decentralization of the system is kind of the min of all the decentralizations of the critical pieces of your network. And for some like a spot exchange, maybe there are fewer, but for a derivatives exchange, okay, now we got to worry about MEV like we're talking about, or we got to worry about Oracle prices, or even if we're going to follow this to conclusion, we got to worry about like the decentralization of clients and front ends and stuff like this. Um, so I think we just try to take a more holistic approach to what is decentralization and then, you know, I've actually been uh, impressed with how little people have been lampooning us, at least for the past year or so on making the decision to switch to our own app chain, because hopefully we're doing a good job communicating it. Um, but there still are, are those out there that are like, oh, well, you have like 50 to hundred validators. This thing is clearly not decentralized at all. Um, and yes, like that, that's a min on the amount of decentralization that we can have, but I would argue the entire system is more decentralized still than uh, at least any other perf exchange, decentralized perf exchange that's out there. And, and that's really our goal. All right, everyone, we will be back to the program in just a moment. But before we do, I want to share something that Blockworks has been cooking up for these last couple of months. March of this coming year in London, Blockworks is hosting DAS London, the largest institutionally focused conference in all of crypto. We are gathering 1,200 of the world's largest asset managers. So think TradFi macro funds, crypto native funds, big allocators, and financial institutions. So banks, payment processors, etc. all in one spot. It's very rare to get the likes of Goldman, JP Morgan, Point72, whatever, all in one room so you can know what the big money is doing. We're diving into the themes that they care about. So we're talking about the intersection of macro and crypto, where we are in the cycle, real-world assets, so everything from stable coins to on-chain treasuries to tokenized assets. It's going to be a blast. But the other reason you really want to go is London, baby. Center of the world at one point. You got pub culture, you got fish and chips, great beer. It's going to be a blast. So because you're such great listeners to Bell Curve, there's a code BELL20 that's going to get you 20% off. So click the link at the bottom of this episode. It'll take you right over to the home page you'll see all of our speakers and use bell 20 for 20 percent off ticket prices are going up soon make sure you go use that code i will see you in sunny london town in march maybe that's a good place to segue and, and talk a little about dydx's transition from originally being an l1 ethereum application to being an l2 
to being um, a Cosmos app chain. Um, so what, what were some of the trade-offs uh, and, and factors that made you make those uh, decisions as a project? Yeah, so we've been around for a while. I mean, DYDX is like six and a half years old at this point. So we were in DeFi before DeFi was even a thing. Um, so obviously we were building on layer one Ethereum um, because that was the only thing that existed in town. And that made a lot of sense at the time. The reason that we went to L2 is pretty simple, honestly. It's we were getting destroyed by the amount of gas fees that our users and kind of the company to some extent on behalf of users was we're having to pay. Um, and this didn't used to be a problem at all. Um, but then in the bull market of 20 or 20, 2020 or so, when people really started trading on Uniswap, Compound, using actually using these products, the gas fees went like 1,000x through the roof, which was hard to foresee. And then, honestly, the decision at that point in time was like, oh my God, like this is terrible. Like who's going to use an exchange where you have to pay $100 to make every single trade on the exchange? And I think that really hit home more for us at DYDX, at least sooner than some of the other decentralized exchanges of the time, because our users are more professional than the users, I would say, of pretty much any other decentralized exchange. Um, and when you're kind of YOLOing in to some random shitcoin on Uniswap or whatever, <laughs> do you have to pay $50 gas fee or whatever? but the thing could kind of go up 100% in the next two seconds, um, you're probably not going to care quite as much about gas fees. Usually swap users obviously still do care about gas fees, but probably less than DYDX users you do is the point I'm making here. We had to solve this problem um, and we took a look around at what was possible to build on uh, at this point in time in 2020, entered into a partnership with Starkware to build the... I'm used to saying current DYDX products. I guess it's not the current DYDX product anymore, um, but the V3 version of the DYDX product, and that's what exists today. And there certainly are trade-offs there. And the thing that we had to do to enable that level of performance at the time, given the limitations of the technology, was introduce some more centralization on specifically, effectively the sequencer side through Starkware and then on V3 and all the way up until V4, uh, us at the company behind DYDX were operating parts of the exchange and we were operating things like the matching engine. And that worked pretty well. And that's taken us to where we are today with about a billion dollars a day or so traded on the platform. And you can trade on DYDX with almost no gas fees, basically no gas fees. And that's a pretty awesome trading experience. And again, we have to really look at who are our users. They're different than most other DEXs. But I think there is a really fundamental reason why we were, I would argue, the first major project to really embrace L2 in a really big way, and at least by trading volume, the biggest product on L2 today. So that's why L1 to L2. I don't think that should be huge news to anybody at this point. I think the rest of the market has finally caught up that this is something that is exciting. I mean, I think people are always excited about it to some extent, but it's also feasible now with things like Optimism, Base, um, StarkNet, all this other stuff. And now, like, the L2 revolution is really on. So you might ask the question. Yeah. Why. I, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I do think it's interesting because I think you were, you were somewhat early on that and particularly on the question of composability because mm. I think early on, other than DYDX having, I think, for a while, the cheapest flash loans on Ethereum L1, I think you've, you've kind of eschewed composability um, or, or atomic interoperability with other applications as a, as a major goal. Um, and I think with with moving to L two and then uh, and then moving to L one, you're sort of moving further away from co-location with other Ethereum apps. Um, do you think has that been a major sacrifice for the application? 
Um, it's a good question. And so just a brief aside on the flash loan piece, I would argue we actually kind of invented flash loans at DYDX. We didn't call them that at the time. Um, and Brandon and I, our, our chief engineer and myself, we were like, oh, this just seems like a cool thing we should obviously build, but we're not going to take a fee on this or anything. And we'll just enable them for the entire ecosystem because like, why not? We want to use it. Um, and I can't even, I don't even know how much has been put through in flash loans on DYDX, like a trillion dollars or something at this point in time. So I think we were right that these were going to actually be big, but probably should have put some more uh, potential value capture, whatever around that, um, whatever we're, we're moving on. Um, so that was flash loans. And I think you really, we really did think a lot about composability. And I think that that flash loan thing is an example of us building that is a first and foremost priority on what we used to build at DYDX. And I think the reason why we've moved away from that is we've realized that it's hard and it really distracts you from what you're building with the end user facing products. Not that it's impossible to do both, but it's very hard. Um, and I really believe, and I think people probably see this come through in a lot of the communication that I do publicly, it's all about the product, our product first and foremost, and then it's all about the end user experience. Um, and we just have, as you say, I agree, kind of moved away from composability over time. I think that's gone well for us. Um, and I don't think this will always be the case for DYDX, but I think I see it as a sequencing thing where it's really important for us to get the main use case for the product to be great before we move out to enabling, well, or at least like encouraging or seeing as a major priority, other people building other products on top of the protocol as well. Um, and this is not to say that this is the objectively right way to do it, but I think this is the right way to do it for DYDX. And just with the DNA of our team, I think, again, our users have really high expectations because they are more professional traders. So it's just it's really hard to build a derivatives exchange. Like you got to think about all these things like performance, like liquidity, like oracles and everything else in between. Um, and it's just the design space, the complexity is harder than for just a, a spot exchange. Um, so I think it, it warrants us spending a lot of time focusing on it. And then going forwards, we already have started to do this. Like one of the things that I'm excited about, even with the DYDX chain, is other people building either code directly into the DYDX chain or things on top of it. I think the thing that I described before that Skip is building is a great example of this. I think the DYDX token holders having literal more control of the exchange because, okay, now they don't have to have this centralized entity implement some of the things that they want to do. The whole thing is decentralized. It's open source and they can just enact effectively any change to the active software that they want to. Um, so I think things like that do move us more towards composability in the abstract sense. Um, and then eventually we'll get to the point where we really are to the level of like a Uniswap or something like that being like, Hey, we're Uniswap. You can use uniswap.org, but really it's about just building stuff on top of Uniswap and that being a really powerful thing. Hmm. So Tony, one thing I'd love to get a sense of, um, is, you know, you've been, I think, very uh, vocal and, and probably very forward looking, I would say, amongst founders. Of, I remember at a panel, you were at our, our DAS conference, it must have been like a year or two ago, but you said it many other times, which is like, I wish founders would stop looking at these ecosystems as distribution and more look at what it can enable in terms of your product, which I think you were probably mm -hmm. ahead of your time. And that might still even be a somewhat, um, 
you know, non-mainstream consensus take. But I would love to get a sense of, you know, when you think about what being an app chain enables you to do like more concretely, uh, as opposed to what you could do even as a as a layer on the layer two, like the starkware. Um, I'd be curious, like what those things are, like what are sort of sort of some of the advantage of like, for instance, having each validator being able to run their own order book. And you mentioned, I was actually going to ask you about oracles as well, because that seems mm -hmm. like it's a hot topic in Ethereum land of using an oracle versus not, or how do you use the oracle? And you kind of have this very neat answer uh, to that. Um, so I guess for folks who aren't as like in the weeds in terms of, you know, what you're thinking about building from a product standpoint, and what were some of like the needle moving decisions that you were like, wow, I can just build this and this solves a lot of my actual product level challenges being an app chain as opposed to being a adapt uh, can you just like give us maybe like your top two or three uh, in terms of what moves the needle for you yeah i think that's a good question and i think whenever you're building a really big new product it's worth articulating in very simple terms why are you doing this what's the one thing maybe the two or three things that you're trying to solve by building this new product like what's the problem on your existing product if you really feel the need to build something fundamentally new. I touched on this before, but just to clearly articulate it for our move from layer one to L2, it was performance. That was it. Um, it's like we had to build something. We were just getting so destroyed by the gas fees. The performance was so bad. We had to make that change before others in the space did. And we figured it out. And the big change from V3 to V4, or the move from an L2 to an app chain is decentralization. Um, and we had to solve this problem of how do we get rid of these central components of what we are operating on the chain and how do we make the system as decentralized as possible both now and then have a good platform to improve decentralization over time. Um, so with that in mind, I touched on this before, but I really do believe this is the most decentralized system that we could have built that's sufficiently performant as well. Um, and that's hard, actually. It's hard to not have to trade off against decentralization and performance. And I think to some level you do. But I think great software engineers realize that everything is a trade off, but you can make, you can kind of minimize the effect of trade offs over time or like what's the best trade off that you can actually make. Um, and we felt like we need to, to, as a goal, at least maintain a similar level of performance to what exists on DYDX v3. Um, and we articulated that in terms of the amount of orders placed per second that we saw on the platform and on DYDX v3, it was about 500 to 1,000 orders placed per second. So uh, again, at least to start, and we'll continue to improve this over time, but we needed to have the DYDX chain process 1,000 orders per second, ideally with low or no gas fees, because like who wants to pay gas fees when you're a market maker and placing orders that's terrible. Um, so I've said this before, but just briefly, I'll say it again. The big thing that we did about two years ago when we started looking into building the DYDX chain was take a look around and ask ourselves which blockchain or L2 or whatever can support a thousand operations per second. And not just operations, but these are pretty sophisticated operations, actually. It's not just like you're moving funds from one place to another. You got to do margining checks. You got to do all this other stuff. That's pretty computationally hard. Um, so a thousand of those types of transactions per second, again, with ideally low or no gas fees and as close to instant finality as we could achieve. And we came back with the answer, none of them, not even close. <laughs> um, and, you know, maybe that's changing to some extent now, but uh, I, I really do think that a thousand transactions per second is just where we're starting. Like if really our goal 
is, as I've articulated it, to become one of the biggest exchanges in crypto, period, centralized or decentralized, we have to continue growing from here. Like, do you think Binance is only doing a thousand transactions per second? Like, no, I guarantee you it's orders of magnitude more than that. So what's kind of an architecture that we could build that will continue to scale in that exponential way? Um, so we took a look around. The answer was none of them, Cosmos included. Um, and I won't go too much into this right now because I've talked about it elsewhere, but we built this kind of differentiation between being able to place orders in an off-chain way, the order book is run off-chain, and then only do orders that actually match have to, to go into the blockchain. So that was the biggest reason behind the decision was how do we solve this problem of decentralizing the order book and the matching engine? And then we kind of got a lot of cool stuff for not for free, but at least in a, a better design space in a better way along the way. Um, so we started with that and then we were like, oh, should we keep using Chainlink as we do on DYDX v3 for oracles or should we build our own oracle system? Um, we were like, it's actually not that hard to build this oracle system. The hard part of building an oracle system is having this decentralized network of reporters. And as I've said before, I would argue that decentralization is a min. So already by definition, we're meaning our decentralization by the amount of decentralization of our validator set. So we just have exactly the same level of decentralization for the Oracle system. Um, obviously, there's there's some other considerations around like where the source is coming from and stuff like that. But we, we try to do an industry leading job of that, too. Um, so kind of got that without too much problem. Um, we got this bigger design space for MVV that we've been talking about as an advantage. And I think it really just does come back to you know, I didn't honestly think a lot about, oh, MEV is going to be so much easier to solve on an app chain. Um, and, and that being one of the really big reasons that we decided to build the thing that we built. But it does come back to, okay, let's pick the one thing. Like, what are we trying to do here? We're trying to make it more decentralized. And that will have, if you believe that that one thing that you're trying to do is really important, that's going to have a lot of impacts that you maybe would not have even foreseen at the beginning if it is a really important thing to do. Hey everyone, wanted to take a quick second to shout out this season's partner, Maverick Protocol. Now, many of you probably know Maverick as an innovative AMM, which they are, but in reality, they're a lot more than that as well. Maverick is a suite of tools for DeFi users and builders that allows them to put liquidity where it will get the most work done. Since Maverick launched in March, they have been gobbling up market share. And at the time of this recording, which is the end of September, on a trailing seven day volume basis, Maverick is now a top three DEX by volume, and they support over 50% of the volume on the L2 ZK Sync era chain. Maverick enables LPs and token pairs to process higher volume with limited TVL, which allows them to support some of the highest levels of capital efficiency for LSTs like Rapsteeth. Another very cool feature is something called Maverick Boosted Positions. So that allows protocols looking to bootstrap their token liquidity to target the shape of liquidity of any token pair with surgical precision. Maverick is backed by some of the leading institutions in crypto, Founders Fund, Pantera, Coinbase Ventures, Finance Lab. They are all backing Maverick in their vision to revolutionize the next generation of DeFi dApps and helping them build their liquidity in all market conditions. Click the link at the bottom of this episode let them know that I sent you. Thanks, guys. I, I want to get to discussing uh, perps here as well. Um, it's something that we haven't really covered in, in this season thus far. But the la maybe the last question on on this subject is how do you feel about, you know, what absolutely should be on chain to ensure decentralized, like whatever your sort of threshold is for decentralization that you feel like is necessary versus which components are you sort of comfortable 
moving off chain, which seems like a lot of DEXs are starting to experiment with that particular lever as well. So I'd be curious to get your thoughts. I think it really matters what you mean by off chain. On chain, I think is pretty well understood. People think about that a lot. It's like, okay, this is blockchain. It's limited by the decentralization of the validator miner set itself, consensus, whatever. But off chain could kind of be anything. Um, and I think a lot of people, when they hear off chain, immediately think of centralized, um, which is an option, but it doesn't have to be. Or potentially there could be another network of off chain participants, like a keeper network or something like that. that uh, does some job together, but then again, you have to really think about what's the level of decentralization of this off-chain thing. Um, and as long as that's similar to or greater than the decentralization of your base chain, amazing. You're not sacrificing any decentralization when you're moving something from on-chain to off-chain. So that's really the way that I think about it. Um, and I do really think a, a lot about decentralization at each step in the chain as you've heard me talk about, um, but it, it matters what you're doing, right? Like potentially something like what are literally the balances of each particular user and how are they being modified by each particular trade? Yeah, that's really important, right? Like obviously that's the key thing that has to be super decentralized. Like probably that has to be more decentralized than like, okay, I place a trade and maybe some validator like censors me or whatever. Like, great, that's bad. Like we want to solve that too, but do we need to solve that with as much urgency as some validator can literally change your balances by, by themselves or with some non-decentralized network doing that? Like that's clearly <laughs> terrible. Like we can't have that happen. Um, so I think it's worth thinking about from like a product perspective, being honest about what level of decentralization does each particular point in the transaction and abstract abstract sense chain need to have um, and then using that to inform your decision making for the trade-offs that you're going to make between performance decentralization product whatever else i think one other thing that i think is, is really decentralization can have different effects on is between spot dexes and perps i think it's generally a lot considered a lot harder to do a, a secure build a secure perp needless to say in part because you know with spot you can ensure non-custodialness of, of uh, everyone's assets, but with the perp ultimately you're subject to to all the risk controls of the of the mm -hmm. system. Um, so, how decentralized do you think perps can get? Well, I think the sky's the limit for all this stuff, right? And that's one of the really exciting things about blockchain is all of this stuff is now technologically limited rather than limited by humans, and we can go a lot farther with technology and. I think it'll continue to increase exponentially, at least for the time being or the next five or 10 years or so. So I think they can get very decentralized. I mean, I think the state of the art is is decent right now. Um, and I think it's, I mean, I think we all believe this, but it's worth noting that a lot of these like decentralized perp systems have been more or less as robust as a lot of the centralized ones, at least for the leading ones, um, or at least within range of that. It's a little easier because there is less open interest, all this sort of stuff on dexes than, than sexes, especially for derivatives. Um, but we're growing and it's significant right now. So I think it's just something where the level of decentralization or safety and, and risk is good right now, but is a major thing that we are going to continue to improve on the systems over time. I think from a financial perspective, it's pretty similar between centralized and decentralized exchanges. The main difference is you have to really deeply understand each, like the way each participant's network operates and how that's going to be different from a centralized exchange. 
Um, like, let's give a specific example. On a centralized exchange, obviously, the operator of the exchange, the matching engine is the one doing all of the liquidations. And on the DYDX chain, now there is no central entity. So we have to rely on all of the validators to do the liquidations. What are the considerations around this? Okay, well, as long as we set up the incentives correctly, we can make this into a really good system, but we have to be honest, like uh, there's incentives for once an account becomes liquidatable, uh, that the first validator actually liquidates this account, but you know, what if they are offline or what if they just decide not to, or there's some weird incentive that we didn't think about that maybe this particular validator doesn't want to liquidate this account or whatever. And then maybe you have to wait for two, three, four, five validators in the block, the next block spaces to actually do that liquidation. Well, okay, it's probably going to happen a little bit slower than a liquidation if it's on Binance, and that's at kind of the millisecond level. And we have to set risk controls appropriately. Now, can we improve that over time? Yes, definitely. With things like better mechanism designs, shorter block times, all, all the rest of this sort of stuff. Um, mm. And like we, we have to think about like the question, okay, is doing a liquidation in 10 milliseconds really that different from a risk control perspective uh, from doing it in five to 10 seconds with really high confidence. Maybe, but we actually have to look at this statistically and that's something our research team has done. Like what if we had a five to 10 second lag on all of our liquidations, at least with the data we have on DYDX V3 right now and that historical market data, like would the insurance fund have lost money? Um, and we came back with the answer, no. Um, so, hmm. and again, like we can never exactly know what the volatility of markets are going to be or if there are certain attacks and stuff like that. But the best we can do is approach this from a good research risk statistical basis and understand the technology deeply. And that's something we think about. Nice. Just out of curiosity, what are the block times on DYDX? It's about a second right now, I think. Oh, interesting. Um, I don't want to go dive. That could be a whole other rabbit hole, but um, I, I want to ask you a little bit about just how do you see the market share in between uh, PERP shaking out with spot, I suppose, on the decentralized exchange front? And then one of the other questions that uh, Dan and I have asked a little bit this season is the the popularity of PERPs as opposed to something like options, um, which options, if you look at the uh, TradFi as an analog, extremely, extremely popular product, and they just haven't really taken off in crypto for whatever reason. So maybe there are path dependency sort of issues there, or maybe for whatever reason, it's just a better construction in crypto specifically. But yeah, I would love to just get your thought on, you know, perps versus spot as market share and then perps versus options as a product. Okay. Well, obviously I'm kind of biased on the first one, but I will make my <laughs> points as I believe it. Right. Um, uh, clearly, I think that perps, especially in the deck space, are going to become really significant over time, especially from a relative basis where kind of spot dexes and perp dexes are starting right now. Literally, if we just look at the market share of dexes within perps versus spot, it's way less than perps. And this is the main metric that we look at at DYDX to decide if we're successful or not. Um, is what is our market share of all perpetuals or more broadly derivatives trading that happens within crypto? And to give people a sense, that's about one to one and a half percent right now. Pretty good, pretty significant. And this is a massive, massive market with huge companies like Binance, um, now Coinbase, others playing within it. Um, and we're by far the largest DEX that's playing in this space, but there's a lot of room to grow, right? Like it just doesn't make sense to me that forever crypto is going to be traded on centralized exchanges. It'd be really hard problems to solve as we've started to discuss, but like is the market share of 
derivatives trading for DEX is always going to be like 2%. We're like one and a half, one and a half percent, and then you know, more mark more volume than all the other perp dexes combined, more or less. So the entire dex market space for perps is about two percent. Um, I actually don't remember or don't have off the top of my head uh, what kind of the the spots dex market share is, but I think it's a lot higher, probably like an order of magnitude higher at least. Um, and I think exchanges like Uniswap have really started to take out more of like a Dan. You can correct me there, around fifteen percent. Yeah, that's kind of what I was thinking, like 10 to 20% of like the entire spot market share. So again, like an order of magnitude more than what DYDX has in the perp space right now. So even if we just look at those two things, like it just makes logical sense to me that that should grow. That being said, there's a lot of really, really hard problems to solve as we've started to say within perp specifically, and it's just harder than building spot exchanges, especially from a technical perspective. So um, it does make sense to me that it's taking longer than, than spot. Um, but we, we, as kind of the market leaders and Dex perps have to be the ones to take ownership of that and really push things forward, which I think we try to do. Um, and then the second question on why perps over options, I think it's just that the market structure of crypto is really fundamentally different than traditional finance. And I've said this for years, but my main point continues to be that in crypto, really the thing, the one thing. That, ha that crypto has enabled, that has given it product market fit on a global scale, is enabling retail traders to trade and have access to more professional products than they would otherwise have access to. Like that's it. That's like the main, like you could attribute almost everything that's happened within crypto so far to this main thesis. And that's really fundamentally different from traditional finance where you now there's things like Robinhood and retail is starting to come in in a bigger way, but traditional finance was first and foremost built to serve institutions. Crypto is first and foremost built to serve retail. Um, and this is really fundamentally different. It doesn't mean that institutions aren't in crypto, but it means that if you are an exchange, you have to build products that retail traders want to use. Um, and that's the entire game. And sure, the institutions will come in, they will actually be most of the volume on your exchange, like on DYDX, I think 85 to 90% of our volume happens from institutions. And it's like 10 to 15% that happens from retail. But I really just see institutions as a multiplier effect on the retail trading volume that exists. So if we look at this from a financial design perspective on what derivatives is the space gonna be most likely to trade, probably gonna be a derivative that's different. It's going to be a derivative that's more targeted at retail. And I'm not talking about your friend that bought their first Bitcoin yesterday when I see retail here. I'm really just talking about sophisticated individual traders in jurisdictions where they have access to these types of products. Um, but for those traders, they really want something that does solve their needs. And their need, if you're a sophisticated trader trading derivatives, is effectively you want to trade on leverage. Um, and you want to do that in as simple a way as possible. It was really interesting, actually. We had Arthur Hayes in for a fireside chat at DYDX a couple months ago. And I asked him this very question, like, how did BitMEX come to do perps rather than options? And he was like, actually, we started with options. <laughs> Not that many people know this about BitMEX. And they built this whole thing out. And everybody kept, he, Arthur was doing support himself. And everybody kept writing in and asking him, uh, like, what is expiry? Like, I don't understand this thing. I just want to trade on leverage. Like, let me just trade on leverage simply. And he kept answering and it's like, no, there's like the expiry. Here's how you price options. Here's how you think about them. This is well understood. Like, people don't care. They just want a product that is simple to use. And that's how he 
effectively came up with the PERP product for BitMEX. And I think that's really instructive as to why um, PERPs rather than options within crypto. And I used to think that this was just a step in the evolution of derivatives in crypto. And I think probably to some extent it is. I do think options will gain more market share over time, but I think it's going to take way longer than people think, like way longer. Um, and, it, and this has kind of been empirically proven for the past few years, um, but perps are really here to stay. There's a bunch of liquidity behind it. There's a bunch of retail interest behind it. And these products are now better understood, at least for our target users, than a lot of the options, dated futures and stuff that exist in traditional finance. Yeah, um, that I honestly, there's a whole other conversation that we could have about that. And actually, perps were a, a construction that existed pre-crypto. A lot of people don't don't know that. There's a great episode that Hasu did with Sue uh, about that on, on Common Core. But uh, unfortunately, this is all the time we have. Antonio, this has been a ton of fun. Uh, if folks want to find out more about you, follow the work that you're doing at DYDX, what's the best way to do that? So we are at DYDX on Twitter, DYDX.exchange on the web. And I am at Antonio M. Giuliano, if you like me in particular. <laughs> Thank you very much for having me. This is a awesome. good conversation. <laughs> Ton Thanks of fun. a lot for coming on. Thanks for coming on. All right. All right, Dan, that was a, that was a great episode. I feel like we could have gone for double the length of time oh, yeah. there. Um, I think, yeah, yeah, I think the only, the only problem with it was, I think um, Antonio is so good at explaining things and has such a clear um kind of style that it was it was uh hard to get too back and forth and and um uh into too much discussion with him because i think he just, he just had a lot of a lot of really interesting clear things to say yeah i agree i i wanted to start with this this idea that he brought up about the almost like social slashing uh because this was this was an interesting proposal it got uh it got a lot of attention i would say in both the ethereum and cosmos communities the mev communities i, I think you you pointed out sort of the the ethereum perspective which is that if, if i had to summarize it and be pretty reductive about it it's like hey guys this kind of feels like cheating here you know there's there's no mechanism design here there's nothing on chain it, this is just saying like hey we're going to slash the people who are are bad and i feel like this is um you know we underscored it a little bit during the during the episode but it's this is indicative of a difference uh in, in between some of the solutions i've seen tried in cosmos versus ethereum but i would love maybe you say yeah. a, a little bit more about how you how you view that yeah well so first of all i think it I, I so I think it's I think it's very interesting and maybe gets a bit of a bad rap in the Ethereum community, um, or around some people who've reacted to it. I think so. One thing, and I noted this on the on the show, is I think any mechanism um, in crypto, almost most mechanisms for consensus or for economics, for a lot of these things, depend on some form of of these norms or, or social sanction or, or weak subjectivity or, or uh, call it what you will. Um, and I think we see this in. Ethereum most clearly when you talk about something like reorgs, for example. So it's accepted mm. socially in Ethereum that it's okay now to extract most kinds of MEV from a block that you are the proposer for. Um, but it's generally not considered not acceptable to reorg other people's blocks um, as proposer in order to extract to extract more MEV. And then there's there's areas in between that are that are you know sort of where people are learning the um, the norms around around like oh should we allow someone to propose a block a little late um, or these or these other things, but Ultimately, I think th those are enforced by social norms. And we, as a community, made something of a decision that actually, for various reasons, we're going to accept single block um, MEV extraction uh, uh, for, and for various reasons, many of which I sort of I tend to agree with or, or think make sense. But I'm not sure it's the only choice that you could make. And I think saying we're not going to accept it actually does make a big difference. It means, you know, for example, 
uh, but you know, people people sort of mock it. But it means like if if uh, if you didn't have this kind of norm, maybe just DYDX validators would be like, I'm the most MEV extractee, so so delegate to me, and I'll give you kickbacks <laughs> from the MEV that I extract, right? Like you would yeah. actually get you you you're able to do a lot more if it's socially if it's socially allowed, and if you if you um, have to hide it, it actually does limit what you can do. Um, now I think again, clever validators often would be able uh, will be able I think to extract MEV in subtler ways. Um, and possibly in the long run, they can, you know, it's a cat and mouse game. They can extract all the same kinds of MEV. But, um, but I think there, there, there are other components to their solution, which includes like this dashboard and actually measuring, measuring metrics of it that I think, you know, look, it's, it's at least if it is a cat and mouse game, you know, so there, there's, um, it's at least, you know, they're, they're trying to be the cat for at least a second. And then of course they are taking, um, ultimately, uh, they're, they're, they're working toward, working toward trying to design other systems, um, to, to either supplement or replace or replace the social sanction, but ultimately, I think you you are going to depend on some kind of social norms, whether it's around you know not colluding with other other people, whether it's around just not destabilizing the entire consensus. Um, uh, you go any any system ultimately, I think, will fall back on some of those. Yeah, you know the reorg example is a really good one. There was a there's an old episode of Zero Knowledge where. Um, it was a uh, Dean Eigenman, his partner at Project Blanc, but he used to be in Flashbots. I think his name is Edgar. I'm I'll yep. look it up. But uh, yeah, and he was describing how he sort of embarked on this uh, this project that basically would have been extracting Mev through reorgs. And he said the thing that got him to not do it was a DM from Vitalik. You know, yep. so um, there is there are social pressures everywhere, and I tend to agree with you. I actually don't think it's such a negative thing because. At the end of the day, you'd be, you'd be shocked about how much just everyday average life in every individual country is enforced by not necessarily the law, but uh, social norms that we all abide by. And one of the one, the reason that this just makes me smile because it's such a funny difference between uh, I think the Ethereum and Cosmos communities is again it's because I think Cosmos doesn't have this pressure of securing the two hundred fifty billion dollars that Ethereum does, but Ethereum tends to be much more uh, research oriented, and uh, Cosmos sometimes will just be like. Let's just try this. And you, you actually saw this, you know, this the the example that I love to point to is the Lido. Well, what's the right amount of stake for one staking pool operator to have? Is it 20%? Is it 15%? Let's do some studies. And and over in Cosmos land, they implemented something called liquid staking module, which is a form of regulation essentially for the hub. And they were like, let's just try like 20%. Yeah. Feels, feels about right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just funny. Um, I think it's right. And it, it has. I think it can have downsides, but I think it also, um, yeah. Like often you end up. It's interesting because often in Ethereum you end up with a solution that actually isn't isn't very well researched because like we didn't expect this to happen. All the research was around some other edge case, and this is and then this is the one that happened. Um, and so like unless you have a really like ironclad proof that your system works, which in in, in crypto only only a few things have that. Um, yeah, I think sometimes you sort of got to try it and then and then patch what you see rather than. Um, trying to anticipate, like you know, sort of, or plan everything out uh, theoretically ahead of time. I agree. I also think that's why it's actually, although people, uh, myself included, like bemoan or push back against tribalism, it's actually not a bad way to organize people to solve disparate problems. Like, there's some amount of groupthink that happens in every crypto community, and there are definitely cons to that. But the pro is that everyone is like laser focused on solving one thing, right? Or sort of in the same way of thinking. And actually having these different communities with different perspectives and ways of approaching problems is actually not a bad way of solving a really large uh, related set of problems at scale, um, would be my, <laughs> what yeah. I, that's my sort of thought. Okay, but uh, one of the things that I appreciated about Antonio that I'd love to get your your take on is he, I was thinking about this as we were recording, he he's very thoughtful about treating decentralizations as a means instead of an end. So what I mean by that is like you often hear in crypto, like I'm a, you know, decentralization maxine. It's like, 
why, well, why are you decentralized? Because if you ask, why do I need to be decentralized? You have a good understanding of how decentralized I need to be so that I can optimize for giving a good product and trading it off against decentralization. So, you know, for something like Ethereum and Bitcoin, it was the, the explicit use cases, censorship resistance, whatever, uh, for money, you want to be basically just as decentralized as you possibly can. But I feel like Antonio has been at the forefront of pushing for, well, actually for an exchange, maybe I don't need to be as decentralized as money itself. Um, and instead, I'm going to ask myself, for what exact purposes do I need to be decentralized? And I thought that's where a lot of the really insi uh, interesting insights came out around, um, you know, like validators running their own order book and being able to act as uh, oracles. Very interesting. Do you need a thousand of those? Like, probably not. I, I thought that was a very interesting. He clearly thought quite a bit about why he needed decentralization and to what degree. I thought that was interesting. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I think it's a theme we've talked about a bit in this in this season. But like, what do, what do we actually want of decentralization? And I think there are different different layers to it and different kinds of things you want. For me, like one of the one of the really hard lines is the the ability at least to trade on a on a system um non-custodially. The ability at least mm -hmm. for me if I if I if I choose to to um to trade to participate in this system and in a system and trade with it without without having to have another party custody of my funds is really important. But that doesn't necessarily mm -hmm. mean that everybody has to be. It doesn't necessarily mean that things like order books um can't be can't be more centralized. And I think if, mm -hmm. if you have more centralized order books Sometimes that can mean that can mean worse outcomes for, for example, trade ex, uh, price execution. But sometimes it can mean better outcomes. Um, sometimes, like putting some partial trust in in some entities, can mean that in most cases you actually end up um, with better execution. And I think I think you know being a realist about that, as I think Antonio Antonio historically has been, um, and and thinking like, okay, how are we actually going to slice this? What are the what are the components? What roles are de is decentralization play in our system? I think is really important for for designing any of these. Rather than yeah, exactly like t at every at every step, being like, well, it must be better to be more decentralized um at this at this step or like i agree or or what are we even doing here and i'm like well you know i think actually let's let's figure out what we, we could figure out what we're doing here um and then figure out the best way to do it maybe you, you know what that i love that you said that because so much so often it's like well maybe we don't need to be decentralized and then people almost like their hackles go up and it's like well what's the point of even doing this it's like there's a lot of shades of gray in between complete and utter decentralization and one black box server right spectrum trade-offs yeah you know yeah um but that you often do get a very emotional response. Oh, one thing um, I actually wanted to ask you is actually the question that we led with. So you and I have been approaching this all season from we are going to optimize actually the experience of both LPs and swappers to, uh, you know, by by redirecting some of the MEV that gets redirected to proposers today. Um, and that is very different uh, in an app chain system where it's a little bit more of a closed loop or the stakeholders are sort of more are very different. It was also interesting to hear him say, I really care about the swappers. Uh, more so than anything else. That was interesting. That's right. So, so I think one thing, one thing worth pointing out, which we didn't even harp on in the in the call, but just by doing an app chain automatically, you're capturing a lot more MEV for the application um, and, and token holders than you are, you know, the, the, as opposed to what's leaking in um, in a system like Ethereum. I mean, even if suppose suppose every proposer is just maximally capturing MEV, and there's just a just a ruthless race to the bottom on that. Ultimately, mm -hmm. that means that's that's not just going to go to the proposers. It's actually going to end up you'd expect. Um, or a lot of it, at least, you'd expect to go to to, to token holders, to stakers, because mm -hmm. whoever can extract the most MEV is able to then uh, provide the best rewards to uh, to stakers, and they'll get the most people, most stake delegated to them. And so you are, you do have then, even even in this like maximally extractive, like like you know, sort of one of the worst ways you could maybe I would maybe think of you could design the system. You already are getting like MEV extraction for, in some sense, the protocol or for or for token um, for token holders. Although again, I think there's, there's some there's some areas where that leaks out. So I think that's important that like actually you do get some benefits uh, out of the gate. But we don't want to you know um, 
I think that that's not actually everything that we want. One of the things we might want is that Mev just not be extracted from users, in part because I think if you if you give users a bad experience, then maybe they just won't use your application, and um, and then you actually end up with a lot of deadweight loss. Like the application might be better off if it was providing better better execution for for users. And then I think there's there's just like what are, what are yeah what are the goals of the system? And I think generally, yeah, I, I've sort of talked about I think with. Um, with DEXs, I tend to agree with um, with Antonio that what matters is actually the, the the constituency being served is the swapper, and we should just be maximally um, uh, benefiting them. And everything else is just downstream from that, including what we do for liquidity providers and stakers and and all these other parties. They're all there because somebody somebody wants to show up and get a good price by trading. Yeah, it's a really good point. I um oh shoot, where was I? Going? Oh, one one interesting thing I just on uh, fees. You know, he he was obviously very laser focused on fees when we talking about what what made you make the switch from Starkware and why Cosmos. And you know, obviously, uh, he's dependent on like high frequency traders as his market makers. And it actually made me think of this um, this post from Dave Oha I'm blanking. He is a co author, so I, I apologize, but I. Uh, he on on fee credits, this idea of fee credits, um, and the 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 key insight of this paper is that fees people people describe them as a form of revenue, um, but but really the, the the purpose of fees as they're originally conceived, it's a form of a civil resistance, right? It's like you want to prevent spam from just uh, you know pulsating through the network, and the the insight that that David and his co-author had was. Well, actually, you know, instead of just charging people, that's a very crude form of civil resistance. Maybe you could do something like if you are proving that you're a good actor for the network by staking, then maybe you could just not charge fees. So I, I do think there are even like kind of new interesting ideas in the world of app chains where you could reduce and, and there's there's like gasless fees and stuff I know going on on Ethereum. We talked to um, um, von Beethoven about that too. But, you know, I just they're, they're even cool. I just didn't we didn't have enough time to get into it. So I didn't want to go down that that rabbit hole. But I thought that had been. I do think it's, and and this is part of what makes my colleague Charlie, um, or has this sort of made him excited about app chains, is I do think yeah. there's a lot more that you can do um, in terms of setting the rules in order to actually make make Mev extraction more incentive compatible um, mm -hmm. or limit or limit uh, toxic Mev extraction. In a general purpose chain, it may just like there, there are sort of just, it may just be impossible to actually limit these things, um, mm -hmm. uh, or or much much harder. And when you're cohabitating with a lot of other applications, the problems just get much harder. But when you're working on an app chain, um, yeah, I think I think there actually are there's a lot you can do. And a batch auction is one example where you're sort of having this seep into the execution layer of how we execute these trades. Um, this rule at the consensus layer in a, in a way that potentially yeah potentially makes both more secure and and, and uh, ends up with better prices for users. So I think yeah I think application layer uh, app chains and application application specific rollups as well, which we haven't seen. As many of in this um, recently for for whatever reason is in like app specific non EVM um, rollups, but I think we might we might start to see um, more of it at some point. I think uh, yeah, I think, I think mm. you can you can actually do a lot of other rules that make that maybe make Mavic section a little more aligned. Yeah, I, I think there's a this was actually a debate I was having earlier today, but with, with one of our analysts, um, but. Antonio originally moved, there was the fee reason, but then there were things that you could do in an app chain that you couldn't necessarily do. Having your validators serve as an Oracle and, and hosting an order book is kind of the, the primary one that he talks a lot about. With restaking, you actually sort of open yourself up and there might be the opportunity to do that, right? Like you could actually opt into this actively validated service network of people that would essentially act as your um, set of validators as a as a roll up on ETH, I guess. And, and you can actually look... Um, like restaking has a bunch of different use cases. EigenDA is sort of the first wedge use case that they've tried to do, but they you, they also have like um, you know a partial block building as a as an yeah. application that restaking highlights. And 
you know, you, you could actually see probably in theory, a lot of what we talked about today with Antonio could be built on a layer two. I guess the question yeah. is, would you and how practical is it? I'm just not in the yeah. weeds enough to be able to answer that question. Yeah, I, right. And one benefit you get from an app chain um, that you don't really get from restaking is this this alignment of token holders and you know, stakers ultimately actually being um Subject to you, it's like to this to this token that is specifically tied to the success of your app, right? So one right. one thing, and again, I think it's you could still end up with a bad equilibrium where everybody extracts until they kill the chain. Um, but in some sense, like everybody, you know, stakers on DYDX don't want DYDX the the, the um, application to to fail to be to be this like degenerate you know um, thing that 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 ends up ends up killing off its uh, users. They're more long term aligned because ultimately they're holding DYDX token. Um, or and or running validator or something like that, and so in some sense that it's, it's a way to basically tie everybody together here. Whereas stakers of, of ETH may not actually care about as much about the success of uh, of one individual application. So I think that is an interesting thing. We talked about it. My colleague Charlie and I talked about it a few years ago in a post we wrote called the Cosmos Thesis. Um, but it is it is interesting potentially to to try to align people using using uh, an individual staking token. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I that I think that alignment is, and it, he actually called it out. Right, he said there's the there's a fourth um, fourth stakeholder as well, which is DoyDX's chain. Just yeah, I, I'm a huge nerd for Cosmos, and I I love. Uh, it's always nice to get people from the, the Cosmos ecosystem oh, yeah. involved because they're very different, um, sometimes orthogonal to ETH way of thinking. Um, one one uh, sort of if if you're a huge nerd for this, I mean, we'll actually link it in the show notes. But uh, I don't want you to go too deep into this. But the just the link with with Pepsi um, for for people who want to figure it out. Uh, Barnabé, who is the the kind of uh, author of the Pepsi idea over in Ethereum, which stands for Protocol Enforced Proposer Commitments, uh, is actually very similar to, to ABCI++. And it, I think there's, um, if, if you squint at it, and obviously uh, Antonio is trying something more directly with this, it's a way of hosting censorship-resistant auctions um, in a way where you're not questioning, like, who is the auctioneer, you know, risking auctioneer extractable value. So that's something cool. We, we don't need to get into the weeds, but I'll, we'll link it in the show notes here so you can check it out, because he actually highlights how these ideas are similar. Um, Last question for for you, Dan. I think we talked about this in our opening episode of the season, but you know, it was interesting to get his thoughts on the part market. That was a cool little anecdote about Arthur Hayes actually start, trying to start out with options, which makes a lot of sense now that he just said it. Like, yeah, obviously you want to start out with something like options instead of some weird derivative that had basically been theorized but never took off in TradFi. But he was clearly, and I'm kind of I'm kind of on this page too that perps look like they're going to be the winning derivative instrument at least for the time being. I mean, what did you think about his thoughts about just relative spot versus perp market share, and what do you, what do you think about all that? Yeah, well, I think I think I, I agree. I basically agree with what he said. I think I there's a there that there's a lot of room for decentralized perps to grow um, relative to relative to centralized ones, and I think you know some of the, I I'm not I'm not sure that there are. Um, I, I think in some ways decentralized perps it might even be more important. Um, relative to centralized because in part perp markets as we've seen historically can be can be subject to a lot of abuse um and can be and can be very risky and i think to some extent a, a, a properly designed and fully transparent on-chain decentralized uh uh perp you think should be actually a lot more auditable a lot more for for um uh for ordinary people a lot more um or at least for yeah at least for, for highly technical people um mm. a lot more yeah a lot more transparent um, and ultimately, yeah, potentially safer. I think in the long run, it should be it should be safer. I'm not sure we're at that point um, today. Although again, it depends on depends on the centralized prep that you're comparing it to. Um, I think one more interesting one that I think is uh, uh, is worth noting is I think long tail perps 
Um, you know, so mm. like when, you're, when you're trading like uh, uh, crypto assets, I think like, you know, spot markets versus versus perp markets, you know, if you're on chain, like one nice thing about trading spot is like you're literally trading the thing itself. Like it's, it's, it's yeah. just as close to the metal as you can get. But um, one thing on chain on chain perps might be able to unlock is actually like just trading on this like really long tail of, of you know, of things what we would normally consider to be prediction markets. And I think prediction markets have been having an interesting moment. We haven't talked about them much this season. Um, mm. But, uh, you know, I think we saw we've seen mm. some centralized perp exchange sort of uh, 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 play with, okay, like, can I offer something that's a little more like Trump futures, right? Or uh, uh, prediction markets on that. I think you could see decentralized ones do it as well. Um, and they might be a natural place to actually just be trying, okay, like, can we actually, can we get derivatives on like, there's many more things that you could do a derivative on, like literally any number than there are actually just assets in the world. And so this long tail, um, uh, very, very long tail, I think crypto has been historically good at um, serving this, this extremely long tail, decentralized crypto solutions have been. And I think you could see yeah, you could see perhaps serving that as well. Yeah, I, you know what else crypto does well? It's like the best and worst thing about it, right? For when it comes to finance, it moves quickly, which is very, uh, that's not how it works in TradFi for good reason a lot of the time it turns out. But you also do get a lot of very interesting experimentation. Like one of the things I wanted to ask Antonio was, you know, if you look at something like Avo, they have uh, pre-token futures that have launched. So you can actually trade something before it actually trades. Is there a ton of value to that? I don't really know, but yeah. I don't know. <laughs> it's kind of scary. Um, but uh, like, how do you set your market? What do you, what do you, you know, there's no, there's no sort of spot price to, to reference. So it's like an entirely circular um, construct. Right. But I think it yeah, it's, it's certainly an interesting, interesting concept. Yeah. Uh, and all right. Last, last question for you here, because Antonio, I feel like has come out. He, he, this is, I think a very differentiating thing with Antonio as a founder, as opposed to many other founders in the space. And Jeremy's come out and said, like, look, I don't want to be judged based on the ecosystem. It should only be about the product. And honestly, putting my own founder hat on, I, everyone admires that, right? Like, yes, it should be about the product, it should be about the users. But then I put my own founder hat on and it's like, well, yes, but at the same time, you know, ETH has all of these users, right? And you can just clearly see it based on volumes uh, and the amount of assets that have migrated up to rollups. Like, yeah, you got a little bit of a leg up from a distribution standpoint. And the counter to Antonio's perspective is first time founders think about product, second time founders think about distribution. So right. I'd be curious, like if you're just putting on your own, you know, you were starting a Dex, uh, taking some of that research that you've done at Uniswap, putting it to work. You're like, I'm, I'm launching a Robinson exchange here. How would you think about doing that? Would it be all about yeah. the product? Would you be trying to go to where the users are? How would you balance that? I think you, I think you certainly want to go adjacent to where the users are. Um, one interesting sort of, uh, thing I've thought about, about Cosmos for a little bit is that ultimately like, what's the, what's the Cosmos, what's the Cosmos hub really? Like the Cosmos hub is actually Ethereum possibly like most, you know, the, to some extent, a lot of, a lot of Cosmos projects have become successful by, by largely by having functioning bridges to and from Ethereum. Um, and by like, you know, by, by sort of centering themselves relatively close to the Ethereum community, the assets that are in the Ethereum ecosystem, um, rather than. Trying to be central to, to um, sort of Cosmos, and so to the extent that you have actually, um, you know, I think DYDX very much. Um, my understanding is like there, you know, there's the bridge obviously from um, from Ethereum. There, there's also um, you know, I think USDC for for onboarding onto it. Like it's it's not designed, I think, to be that much harder to get un into it. Uh, you can and, you know you can use like MetaMask and everything. It's not des it's designed not to be much harder than to get into it than you can than it is to get, get into an L2, right? And so to some extent, like what is what makes something an L2 rather than um uh a cosmos chain like some of it is some of it is a security model some of it is um is sort of is the vibes and the branding but some of it is just accessibility and, and bridging and i think that's you know having 
if you have a, a Cosmos chain that actually has a very, uh, it's very easy to get on into and out of Ethereum, then I think it may actually not matter that it's oh, it's technically it's technically in the Cosmos ecosystem. Okay, but from a user experience perspective, it's it's um, and in terms of like being able to attract users, it may actually not be that different. You know what? I think you're. I completely agree with that. And actually, one thing I was thinking about was that it's almost like Ethereum and Cosmos clearly have such a similar roadmap. Um, there are a couple key differences, like the hub has token voting as opposed to Ethereum, which doesn't have. So there are some key differences, but there's a path dependence that Ethereum started with the asset. Now they're trying to go to this multi-chain future of a bunch of different. Now, the benefit of that, first of all, obviously, that was, quick, at least in the short term, the right decision. They have many more users, much more liquidity. Um, and so that's their starting point. The, the disadvantage of that is that you actually have a bunch of fragmented layer twos and Ethereum users don't have this understanding that that's all supposed to be one thing. And so it's like, I go on Arbitrum or I go on Optimism and it's a, the user experience is you start on ETH and then you kind of go here or you go up and down. And that's how you learn as a user. But on Cosmos, it's very different. Everyone in Cosmos understands there's this shared vision of this interoperable network of chains. And actually it makes the user experience, at least from my expect, uh, perspective today, very challenging. But every chain understands that it's supposed to be this one chain amidst this interoperable network of other chains. And it actually makes them weirdly, even though they fight a lot, they, that was the understanding from the beginning. Whereas a lot of the L2s are like, I think if you ask them privately, they'd be like, I want to be the only L2 or like one of two, you know, like it, it's just a different um, perspective and standpoint. And yeah, I, they're, they're kind of building the same thing in reverse with uh, admittedly with some minor, some differences, but yeah. Um, yeah. I, mean, I think I think a lot of the time, like these sort of religious differences in, in approach, like, oh, you know, we do it one way and they do it another way are actually just like right now we're making this strategic or tactical decision. And then like ultimately, oh, it turns out actually we could just do that, too, um, or we want to do that, too. And so ultimately, you know, I think I think a, a lot of and the, the projects that survive tend to be the ones that don't get too much. We talked about this in the DAX context, too, that don't get too much religion around a particular type of solution. Yeah. My personal theory for why it tends to feel that religious is because you're often trying to decide between really technical decisions that no one understands. So you have to wrap narratives about like yeah. good, bad. Um, what do you, yeah. What do you think like the original stuff that there were schisms about in the, um, in like the, the, the Catholic and Protestant churches, right? It's like, it's often these incredibly, incredibly <laughs> esoteric religious debates. And then you sort of manage to manage to create this massive culture yeah. around these. You gotta schisms. win hearts and minds, baby. Yeah. Uh, but it's like, that, so that's funny. the only way you're going to get everybody to agree to your definition of the number of angels that can fit on a pin or whatever, right? Is you sort of have to make it, make it like core to your cultural identity that you're, that you believe in this one rather than another one. But ultimately, yeah, I think you're, you're going to be led you're ultimately not going to make a, hopefully, I think as a project, not going to make a bad decision based on like, oh, we, we previously, you know, we, we, we rallied ourselves around this, but actually we, we decided to make this difference, this different change. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, all right, Dan, well, we can, we can end it here uh, just on the subject of Catholicism. That feels appropriate. And uh, yeah, this was a really fun one and I will, uh, I'll see you next week.